Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies has announced the 2018 winners of the Evans Biography Awards. And author and ethnographer Rodney Fry has won the Evans Handcart Award for his book, Carry Forth the Stories, an Ethnographer's Journey into Native Oral Tradition. Uh, Fry holds a a Ph.D. in anthropology and is a professor of ethnography at University of Idaho. He spent more than 40 years interacting with such tribal communities as the Crow, the Coeur d'Alene, and Nez Perce. And he describes Carry Forth the Stories as an ethnographic memoir that weaves events of his own life story with stories collected from interviews, oral histories, and elders that show the power and value of storytelling. He also shares facets of his own cancer journey, seeking therapy from both Native and Western healing uh, traditions. Uh, So, uh, Rodney Fry, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure uh, sharing uh, some stories with you this morning. Uh, So, uh, ethnography. Tell us what that is and how you became interested in this. Uh, Ethnography is a branch of anthropology, um, deals with uh, living uh, traditions, so I've worked with, in, in my case, indigenous communities in the, in the western states, um, dealing with their oral traditions, their, their contemporary culture. And um, I don't know, I got interested since when I took that first anthropology course a long time ago. But I, you know, I was reflecting on my high school experience. I'm just about to go to my 50th high school class reunion here, in, uh, starting tomorrow, actually, in Denver. And... Uh, you know, I, it went to. It was a wonderful high school. We had about 800 in my graduating class, but it was really wonderfully diverse: uh, African American, Asian American, Hispanic, and whites. And we really got along well. I was on the track team, for example, and I was one of the few whites on it. And we we had great time together. We traveled the state, and uh, uh, it was a wonderful experience. Of and I really began to appreciate diversity, uh, other people, other traditions, other than my own. And I remember being on the track team, and I was on the uh, uh, mile relay team, and you know I was the only white guy on it. Um, but when I so I appreciate the differences that we all brought to it. But then those moments of when that baton was sort of effortlessly, effortlessly passed on, there was no difference, and it made all the difference. Mm-hmm. And again, I get just sort of that, that intrigue. And so when I had opportunity to uh, just finishing my master's degree to start do an ethnographic project with the crow, I just jumped at it, and I, I guess I just never looked back. I've just been uh, working with indigenous peoples ever since. Uh, you, you say indigenous peoples. Uh, this is uh, maybe illustrative of, uh, of kind of the cultural divide. I never know what to say. Say Indian tribes, Native Americans, indigenous peoples. Right. What, what, what would, uh, say, a, a crow elder want to, me to, uh, how to refer to him? I think a crow elder would want to have him referred to as Absaloki. That's their term for themselves. Uh, a crow Indian. Um, uh, the term Indian is is used a lot. When we were putting together American Indian Studies program at the university, we went to the neighboring tribes. What do you want to be called? Native American, indigenous, and universally, if there's one term that links us all, they wanted to be called, in this case at that time, Indians. Hmm. Uh, Indians, okay, yeah. Um, this brings up an, uh, a point. You write about this in the book, and, I'm, and, and, you, and I know you, from reading the book, you had to uh, navigate this. 
Um, so you, you want to study, you want to even share and participate, but not co-opt, right? And you want to come into this with the, with the right uh, perspective. There's a phrase you write in the book, uh, you wanted to, and, and certainly uh, the Indians you worked with uh, wanted you to see from the inside looking out. I wonder if you talk right. about that. Yeah, I was really fortunate both when I began my work with the Crow in 74 and then again with the uh, Coeur d'Alene Indians in Idaho in 89. Um, I was working with Elder, and they brought forth an incredible metaphor. Um, in the case of uh, the Crow, Alan Oldhorn had mentioned that, you know, if you want to understand our culture, um, you have got to go inside. And by the way, do you see that tin shed over there in the distance? It's kind of like my culture. We can stand back here and under the shade of this cool cottonwood and talk about it, but it's not until you go inside, led by me, a guide, collaboration, and feel it from the inside, feel the heat, feel the cool, feel the moisture, and try to see it from the inside looking out. If we can do that together, you'll have a better sense of our culture. With the Coeur lanes, he used the metaphor of the sweat lodge, but it's the same idea. You've got to go in, you've got to participate, you've got to have a guide, you have to be able to um, see it from the inside looking out. And most importantly, when you come out of that, we're going to ask you, what are you going to give back? What are you, how are you going to make a difference in our community? Are you going to take from us, or are you going to be able to give back to us? So all my projects have been sort of um, trying to work collaboration, uh, ethically, trying to um, see it from their perspective, not mine, and always with the idea of giving something back as defined by that community. So that was a really important lesson early on in my ethnographic career. <laughs> How do you, uh, because you, you, you've been ingrained with your own culture, right, uh, growing up, how do you, what do you do? You set that aside, you acknowledge it, you, um, what, what, how, how do you accomplish this, uh, seeing from the inside looking out? Well, it, it's, not necess- it's not an easy task. It's, I'm still working on it 44 years later. <laughs> um, it's a lifelong project. But, but it's, it's also recognizing if you're trying to understand somebody else, you have to know yourself as well. You have to know your, your own assumptions about the nature of what is real, what is reality. What is important? What are your key values, your key teachings? Um, some of those will be shared by others. There's, there's a universality in the human species that's just wonderful. We share more than we're different, but you also have to understand our differences. And so it's a real inventory-taking process. And by juxtaposing the other with yourself, you become more aware of that, that, that richness. But it's also, you know, um, in my own journey, I, again, I was fortunate um, working with Tom Yellowtail with the crow, for example. And he had this wonderful story of seeing the world as a great rock medicine wheel, like this great wheel involving many different spokes, all important, all equal, all with their own traditions. My tradition, their tradition, various religions, um, they're all important. Not one is better than another. All are needed if the wheel is to turn. But we're all linked to that same hub. And for Tom, that was the creator, and that was um, um, the Akbar uh, uh, what they term. But, you know, in Tom's case, he was a powerful medicine man. He, he was a sun dancer, but he's also a devout Baptist. And so for him, that center was Jesus Christ, just as easily it was 
talked about it to him. But again, he didn't bring his Sundance into the Baptist church and the Baptist church into the Sundance. He kept the separate spokes. And I think it was a recognition of, of our distinctions and my distinctions um, as we recognized and became competent in other people's spokes, other people's traditions, but then recognizing that we all share more than we are different as we share that hub together. So it's just, you know, in my own case, um, professionally, I was an anthropologist, ethnographer down the road, but I also became, uh, at the invitation of, of Native folks, um, adopted member, and I became a participant there. So those lines between the professional and the personal certainly became blurred in my case. Um, and as long as I understand those differences, I think, um, and then again, as long as folks um, accepted me, um, that I was uh, culturally appreciating and not culturally appropriating These are, in most cases, oral traditions, right? And there's—I want to get into this. There are some strengths that are developed if you learn, uh, you know, by listening and learn to listen. Uh, someone early in the book—I can't remember who said this—he said, "When you write down my words, they become dead words." So you have to work yeah. against that. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, that became a growing appreciation as I um, was became more and more involved with the crows, and then the. As person, the Coeur Lane, for example, and working with their elders, um, you're you're introduced to the world through story, their creation story, the coyote stories, the salmon story, all their great first animal peoples that helped prepare the world for the coming of human beings. But there's stories everywhere. I'd be traveling down to Sheridan from Wyola in Montana to Sheridan, Wyoming, with Tom and his pickup, and he would just this landscape would come alive with stories. So a place to start is with story. And it is a tradition. It's an oral tradition, not a written tradition. And I began to try to understand what does that mean, an oral tradition. Uh, I was certainly raised in a literacy-based tradition. Writing and reading are critical and essential for our culture, to to be sure. But there are certain um, dynamics and ways in which information is stored and information is communicated that differentiate an oral tradition, orality, from a literacy-based tradition. And that oral tradition, um, it's not to say that it's illiterate, not an illiteracy, just not having literacy, but it's a form of, of communicating and storing information onto itself. It's very distinct from literacy-based. It's very participatory. It's very immediate. Um, it's very engaging. Um, and I think one of the things that time is really understood a lot differently through orality than in literacy. Literacy allows you to objectify reality a little bit more, allows you to see a past and a future, a lineal understanding of time. In orality, because of that participatory nature, as the story unfolds, it's as if you're in the story. It's as if you're walking and talking with Coyote of a thousand years ago as if that's right now. It's a very immediate participatory engagement. So time is understood differently. And, then, and thus, information is, is passed on from tr- tradition to tradition, generation to tr- generation, so much more differently. Again, it's not to say it's any better or any worse. It's just a very distinct system. Um, and it's just a different spoke on that wheel. Uh, I wonder if we could, and there are strengths, you know, there's... Um, strengths to each uh, system uh, or tradition, 
definitely some strengths if you grow up with this tradition. I wonder if you tell a story. I was struck by this. In in the 70s, you were hired by Montana State University, you say, as an adjunct professor. And so you're teaching uh, Crow graduate students. Right. Thank you for picking up on that one. It was a great learning experience for me. Yes, I was you know, obviously brought up in the literacy-based tradition. I had textbooks and readings, and I had my wonderfully uh, developed lectures. Oh, I'm sure they weren't so wonderful, but I thought they were at that time. And I, I spent time at those lectures. And I noticed my students, you know, gosh, I put so much effort into these lectures, and they weren't taking notes. They weren't writing down my words. And I had a sense they weren't doing the reading. And, oh, my gosh, well, you know, who's really in charge here, them or me? I was going to make this a teaching experience for them. So on the exam, essay exam, all based upon my wonderful lectures, did they, and they couldn't, of course, because they didn't write it down. If you don't write it down, they can't capture it. They didn't, so I knew I would you know, have this be a teaching moment for them. Well, they wrote, and they wrote, and they wrote. They had everything down that I had spoken weeks before. How could that be? And then I began realizing the, the power of remembering, which is an important dynamic um, in the oral tradition. Um, it, folks aren't dependent upon having to write things down to remember them. And it was just a great learning lesson for me <laughs> and not so much for my students. But I began appreciating that over and over again as I remember hearing Basil White at Kootenai tell this long story front of a non-Indian audience, and it just went on and on and on. It didn't have the usual sensibilities of a, uh, a Western story, a plot line development, but it was intriguing. It lost the white audience, and I said, where did Basil have that story? And here he had told that story, this must have been in 1990s sometime, and I looked it up, and here's a recording that Franz Boas had of it, written recording of the same story in this obscure out-of-print journal in a library that Basil had no access to. And he had kept that story alive. His family had kept that tradition alive virtually unchanged for, you know, 70 years. And I said, how could that be? Again, that's the power of that oral tradition to remember. Hmm. You, you said he lost the white audience? Yeah, that's I mean, they just, because it didn't fit their sensibilities of plot yeah. line development. Interesting. It just navigated, it was a, a very in, in, you know, Native American story, and it didn't fit our preconceived ideas of how a story is supposed to unfold, but it was perfectly true to Basil. And again, the story was virtually unchanged for 70 years. Mm. <laughs> so there's another thing, I, I guess, if you're coming to these stories, uh, you have to uh, set aside some of the, some of the white culture. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you know, the, 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 what we expect to be the narrative, right? The narrative exactly. arc that might, might be different exactly. with, with Indian stories. Um, I, I wonder, there's this passage in the book, I can't remember this um, as clearly as I want to at this point, but a sense that there's a couple of phrases um, which you say it can't fully be um, you know, translated. Uh, one uh, phrase, if we get to this, telling my story. And the other phrase is retelling one's own, and in a sense that your experience is not complete until you, until you tell it to, right. I guess, to, to your family. Yes, that's that's a critical uh, point of this memoir. 
the two phrases are which refers to retelling one's own personal story. And uh, those are stories of others that you are given permission to retell. And, and certainly my uh, professional and personal life is made up of both my own experienced stories, plus those stories shared with me, like burnt face and salmon, and those would be the ba'ejijiwawu. And there's the idea that in, in our own life history, our own life experiences, there are always powerful events that come to us, maybe through uh, an illness or maybe through serving in, our, in the military or serving at our church, you know, some great experience, a graduation. These things are important events that transform us at every stage of our, our being. And they're, they're story. They're forms of stories. And from a Native American perspective, as reflected in these terms by Wawu and Bashbaalijiwa, when those great experiences come to you, you have a responsibility of sharing them, of retelling them so that the community itself can hear of the, of the transformation that you went through and acknowledge that and help you uh, ascend to that position, that as a graduate, as a veteran, as a leader in the church, whatever it might be, uh, ascend to those roles. But also, because of your own experiences, traveling um, a, a journey of healing with cancer, for example, and as you've traveled that, that journey, that powerful experience that you had, and so by sharing it publicly like this, retelling the story for others to hear, maybe some gift will go to them, maybe some insight will go to others so that they may be helped when they face their own challenges or go through their own transformations. The stories don't belong to us. Um, We don't have ownership on them. They're to be shared and celebrated, and we're to learn from them as we share with each other our own life history stories. I think that's the essence of that, that, uh, those phrases, if I got your drift right. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes indeed. Let's take a break when we come back. I wonder uh are there sensibilities um certain stories that you that have been told to you uh that you could share and and others that you would be more careful about sharing? Sure. Absolutely. Um so uh maybe maybe I could have you tell a, a story or two that you feel comfortable sharing. Uh, when we come back, um, carry forth the stories an ethnographer's journey into native oral tradition is the book. It's the winner of the USU uh, Evans Handcart uh, Prize. Rodney Fry is the author, and we'll have more following this break. On the next Hudamaya World Music Hour, reggae music by Bob Marley and his many family members and former bandmates, as well as reggae songs sung by other artists from around the world. Africa. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for a Bob Marley family birthday party on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive mug. 
For more details, go to upr.org. And to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined for the hour uh, by Rodney Fry. He is a uh, winner of the Evans Handcart uh, Prize for Carry Forth the Stories, an ethnographer's journey into Native oral tradition. And uh, these prizes are uh, awarded by Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. The winner of the Evans Biography Award is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich uh, for A House Full of Females, Plural Marriage and Women's Rights in Early Mormonism. We have uh, Rodney Fry uh, with us for another half hour. By the way, uh, Rodney Fry, I guess uh, you would say that you really need to hear these stories. And uh, and maybe, I don't know, they're in English or in the original language, but... Uh, there's a website, uh, page 57, you reference this and carry forth the stories, which you can find at the University of Idaho website. Right, yeah. Where you can, where you can hear some stories. Uh, by the way, are there some, maybe could uh, have you tell me a story or two that's been influential for you? Sure. Well, having said that stories are to be shared, there are, are stories that are not to be shared, and so you certainly have to have permission and be given the right to tell other people's stories. And so there's a, there's an etiquette there, and there's lots of really personal, very sacred stories that are killed with, held within families aren't, that are not to be shared. So that's part of that protocol I talked about earlier, making sure that whatever is shared is shared with permission. Um, and so I, I only include stories that I have retained uh, permission from the elders or from the community or from the cultural committee that oversees some of these stories. So, um, uh, There was one story that uh, was just essential to Tom Yellowtail, and he was my mentor for about 20 years until his passing at the age of 90 in 1993. And um, Tom loved this story. Um, it's, again, something that is best told in interaction with a living audience, so you won't see my hand gesturing or my facial expressions. Um, but this is a, um, an abbreviated form of this beautiful story called Burnt Face. There's a camp, and the fires have died down. But there, you see them. The kids are running fast. They're running here and there, chasing each other, having so much fun after the evening meal. He's not so careful where he plants his feet, and maybe he was pushed, maybe he fell. But his face lands in a pit where there's been a hot fire and the coals are still red hot. And he jumps out screaming as all of the right side of his face is badly burnt. Some elders see this and they come running right away and they pick prairie dog tail, what we call yarrow, and chew it. And by the time they get to the boy, they put this, this salve over his face to help the healing. But it's a bad, deep burn. And he stays within his lodge for days and days as he recovers until eventually he comes out one day and we all gather around and we look and we see. And there, somebody from the back yells out, Hey, you, burnt face! And he feels bad and lowers his head and goes back in. He seldom comes out, but occasionally at night, or maybe there's a big powwow, big dance, he has his face painted. We gather around, and we see, and someone yells, Hey, burnt face. And he 
lowers his head, and that's it. He keeps his lodge separate from everybody else's by now, follows the camp, but at a distance. He never interacts with anybody, not even his parents. He's as if he's an orphan. He travels there and there, and they get close as they travel south toward the Bighorn Mountains. And so one day he tells his parents, I've got to go up there, I've got to pray. And it could be a while, it could be a long time, but I've got to give a, I've got to give a prayer. And the parents know what he's got to do. They make him moccasins, extra food. His father gives him a pipe and shows him how to use the pipe for prayer. And Burnt Face heads off toward the mountain, the Bighorn Mountain, way up there. It takes a long time. He wears out all three sets of moccasins. His fourth set's on now. It's very rocky as he climbs up there even wears holes in that pair. At that moment, he's on a great, great, high, outlooking butte on that mountain. You can see the sun set and rise, and that's where he'll fast. He'll go without food and water for however long it may take. He may not get it off that mountain, but he's got to try. He spends his time by moving rocks around as under the sun, under the watch of the sun. Uh, he makes this great wagon wheel-shaped medicine wheel that Tom always talked about. That's up there in the Bighorn Mountains. Uh, you'll see it with its 28 spokes um, and its hub and rim. It's an offering to the sun or whomever might be watching. It takes a many days of prayer each morning, each evening, without food, without water up there. They had been watching, and they come out. It's the Awakuri, Awakuri, the little ones, the little people. They had been watching. They take pity on him. They've come to him. They adopt him. They take that which he hates, which is on his face, and his face is, as, as Tom mentioned, is like a newborn child's face. They had come to him. They're going to be with him. And they tell him they'll be with him forever. They'll be with him so that he become a great medicine man, a doctor, an octopolia, one who can doctor others. He'll do this to help them. So he goes back to his people. Um, they don't recognize him at first. They don't recognize, who are you? And that evening in a big council, all the elders, all the family is gathered around. He tells them the story. He retells his story. He retells his story. Retells his own story so others may be, um, others may be what gain from that. And he he lived at such a great age that uh, when he moved, his skin would tear. That's how that's old. <laughs> that was one of Tom's favorites, an abbreviated form. He would take a lot longer telling that, but I, I know that we're, we're limited here. But that's the essence of that, that wonderful story. So, so Tom Yellowtail, uh, uh, loved that one. Yes. Um, yes. You, you relate this uh, in the book to your cancer journey. Right, uh, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. that was a, one of my big transformations. I came down with cancer in 2005, then had a reoccurrence in 2009. Uh, had to go through a stem cell transplant and some major um, Western medicine. I, I remember at the beginning of that journey, though, I asked one of my teachers, Cliff Sijon, um, you know, how should I approach this? And He, knowing my, my involvement with the Sundance and with the Crows and, and with himself and Sweats, he said, Rodney, you've got you've to gotta trust your doctors. You've got to trust the head knowledge they can provide you. Um, but you also have something of, 
of a link with heart knowledge. And you've got to, that's your responsibility there is to take care of that. And everyone's going to do this differently. Everybody's major journey when we're challenged, there's different courses that we can all take. We just have to be true to them. And so Cliff wanted me to pay attention to the heart knowledge, uh, which is a Sundance way, which is a native religious way, but also accept and fully integrate Western science with it, hence the stem cell. So I, you know, as I as I was going through this, I I really wanted something to help chart this course, and so there was two things that helped pave my way to make this better, and that was first of all Tom's medicine wheel and recognizing that um, the stem cell and the, the great healthcare I, I received from the Fred Hutchin, the St. Joe, and all the my doctors was one spoke, but on another spoke was the Sundance way and prayer, the importance of prayer and our relationship with the Creator that spoke. They both worked together. Both are part of the wheel. and So that helped me. But it was also the burnt face story. I latched on that story because it was a story of transformation, of challenge. How are we going to face the challenge? You know, burnt face didn't run from his challenges. He faced it. And he tried to lay out his, his, his sincerity, his honesty, and, and to really dig deep um, in order to give, in order to share. He fasted as a gift to the Creator that maybe his gift would reciprocate it. There was no guarantees, but for me, it laid out a perfect transformational route, perfect rite of passage as I was trying to navigate this, this healing journey. So it became an important story for me uh, in that way. Uh, I just want to read a couple sentences here. This is uh, from the essay called A Healing Story. So during the winter of 2006, I think this is Cliff Sai John, um, asked if you would join him in his family's jump dance. Um, and so you say uh, you took your wife and a graduate student. Uh, upon our arrival that evening, as we've done each year, Cliff warmly greeted us, uh, each of us with a warm handshake, saying, Welcome home. Chris and I presented Cliff and his wife, Lori, with three small gifts. A Pendleton blanket in the style I'd used while sun dancing, a smaller blanket, Lori's new grandchild, and a porcupine quilled medicine wheel medallion with an eagle plume attached, which had been given to me many years ago by a Lakota artist. So giving of gifts. This is what struck me. Uh, soon the air was filled with heart talk. What's, what's heart talk? Just very sincere, honest talk with each other in that community setting so people can um, really dig deep and reflect on the important issues they're dealing with. Hmm. I wonder, uh, I don't know, it's irresistible for me to, to think about, uh, you know, how cultures might share helpful things with each other. I don't know if it is for you. Um, th- that was one. I thought, uh, boy, we could use more heart talk in at least yeah. the circles that I run in. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's something that, um, I mean, with all the folks I've worked with in Native communities, there's a real honesty, a real openness. Um, the humor is sincere, and there's lots of humor. Oh, my gosh, the joking that goes on in the camps during Sundance, for example, but also tremendous honesty. Um, it's not to say that there, people don't have problems and there's not rivalries and jealousies, but that heart talk is so important. Um, when you talk, um, if you talk from the heart, as Cliff would always say, your hands will be clean. You'll leave with your hands clean. And that's, he strove, he strove all his life just to be able to share honesty, um, integrity, uh, and authenticity as he spoke. It's really important for elders. 
I wonder, um, you have a section in the book on problems. Less people think your journey has been without, you know, <laughs> your journey collecting stories and, and uh, striving to learn uh, from the inside out has been without problems. And a couple of these problems, some of these problems I was surprised by. I, I thought maybe it would be navigating across cultural boundaries. Some problems arose apparently when you became accepted by certain people and then you became embroiled in, uh, I guess, family squabbles. Right, right. Again, as I mentioned, there there are certainly rivalries and tensions uh, often between families. Those can be healed, and they, they are over time, but they do exist. Um, and so as I became closer and closer, for example, with the real bird family and the yellowtail family, with the crow, for example, um, their uh, traditional rivals um, became my rivals. And um, and they, that can result in some tense situations at times, and, and, and you just never know. And so uh, it's it's part of traveling with that degree of engagement and that intensity and that you know that loyalty to the, the family that's adopted you, and you want to respect them. Um, and so you have to take the good and the bad as it befalls you, including some instances where you thought maybe physical violence might be coming. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. There was one situation when one fellow um, maybe he had a little bit too much to drink and wasn't, you know, his normal self. But he saw me and invited me into his lodge during a crow fair, big uh, encampment, a big celebration of powwow, dancing, and giveaways and rodeo. Anyway, late in the evening, he invited me, and I thought I'd take him up on that. Well, he wanted to kind of beat the, something out of me. <laughs> and it was only his sons who came to my rescue and, and kind of uh, were able to pull, pull him away and allow me to get out that I was able to not get, get uh, the recipient of, of what he intended. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. You, uh, that's, that's not typical. I just, yeah. you know, I don't want to mention that. Right, not, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you received a, a a great honor. I guess it's a cultural honor, a family honor. You're sitting with uh, the uh, Yellowtails, Tom and Susie. And Susie says, "Rod needs a name." Yeah, um, a few years prior to that, um, when I had gone to Tom, my son had become ill, and I, I just during that time away from reservation, having seen the power, sensed the power of what Tom's reality was all about. Uh, as a 25-year-old parent, my son very ill, I reached out and, and made a vow to fast in the hills uh, if Tom would help me do that in an appropriate way, if he was willing to, as a way to help my son in that desperate moment. My son recovered, um, and Tom. I went to Tom and asked if he would allow watch over me and guide me on a three-day fast without food and water so I could uh, give thanks for my son's health. He guided me. We, we sweated before and after, and, and it went really well. The, the sweat was very, or, excuse me, the, the, the fast up in the hills went very well. I, I, I'm just this Euro-American, uh, 25-year-old from Denver, urban kid. And it, was a, it was a stretch. It was a new reality, but it went, under his guidance, went very well. I was up there for three days by myself, but I wasn't by myself uh, in that story. But anyway, that went very well, and when I came down from the hill, we sweated, and Tom said, you know, I'd like to have you join me in the Sundance 
that's coming on in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, I want you to come in and continue your prayers for your son. Um, if you go into the dance, Sundance once, you've got to go at least four times. So I knew it was a commitment of at least three or four years. Um, but I think it was after my second dance, that's when Susie, one breakfast morning, said, now Rodney needs an Indian name. He really can't pray without his Indian name. He can't be heard without his Indian name. And so in an evening ceremony, uh, I think it was probably a few days later, um, we had uh, smudged cedar um, over hot coals in, in the living room and with his eagle feather fan. Um, he uh, gave me my uh, Crow Indian name, um, which is pronounced Magukshijilish. Magukshijilish. And Tom said that's not an easy word to translate, but it means something to the effect of seeking to help others. Seeking to help others. And it was such a huge responsibility, but a great honor to be given such a name. And I guess I hope it. 44 or some years later, I hope I have successfully sought and hopefully have helped others um, in my teaching and my research and my writing. It, that, was my, that was entrusted to me through that Indian name. And now I use it in a, in a prayer situation when I pray, um, and it's recognized by others um, when I'm at the Sundance, for example. I was going to ask you what that has meant to you. You addressed that uh, a little bit there. You, you have felt a responsibility. Oh, yes, um, I do. And um, it, it's a great honor to be given an Indian name, but, but also a tremendous responsibility of, of caring for that name, respecting it, not abusing it, not taking it for granted, um, but use it in prayer, use it in the Sundance. I'm known by that name by the elders of the Crow tribe, and just a great responsibility. You know, during that, that um, jump dance you mentioned earlier with Cliff Sijon, it was during that dance that Cliff bestowed on me a Coeur d'Alene Indian name. Um, uh, and that, uh, that name has always uh, been very important for me as well. Um, it means, in translation, um, Little Red Hawk. And so, um, again, Cliff talked about the, the hawk as one that watches carefully and observes like an ethnographer would, but then comes down and, and gathers that which his family needs so he can help nourish his family, give to his family. Again, a great responsibility uh, for receiving that Indian name as well. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Rodney Fry. Uh, he is an ethnographer. He uh, is uh, a professor of ethnography at the University of Idaho, uh, now Professor Emeritus, I think? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I have retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, has his Ph.D. in anthropology. Uh, he has, he's author of several books, and uh, the latest is Carry Forth the Stories, An Ethnographer's Journey into Native Oral Tradition. It's the winner of the USU Evans Handcart Award for this year. More with Rodney Fry following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education Collegiate FFA, offering students the opportunity to enhance the collegiate experience through activities that promote leadership, personal growth, and career success. 
Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Rodney Fry. He's author of Carry Forth the Stories, an ethnographer's journey into Native oral tradition, which is a winner of the USU Evans Handcart Prize presented by Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Uh, Rodney Fry, uh, is there another story you could share with us? Um, I'm not sure. There's, uh, there's so many, but so, so many of them are so long. Oh, okay. Um, I, I don't know if I would do justice to them, but, um, there's, there is one theme that I'd, I'd like to make sure that your audience, um, understands with the book. And all right. Perhaps maybe one of the big takeaways, if I could. Y- yes, definitely. Present that. I, um, you know, because I do deal with a lot of different things. Over 44 years of experience, there's lots of things uh, evolve, and there's a lot in this ethnographic memoir, um, different topics, etc. But there's one theme that I think runs through the entire book that was really kind of an aha moment for me. Um, the Coeur d'Alene have a term, sukumwachwachmelks, sukumwachwachmelks, which literally translates fellow sufferer. And it's their term for empathy, for your ability to understand somebody else from their perspective, to be able to feel and understand somebody else, empathy. And I realized that when you're looking at storytelling, for example, and there's lots of different techniques and skills that a person needs to be a competent storyteller, but also to be a really good listener of that story. And of all those different techniques, the one that is essential is empathy. It's empathy that you need as a story listener to appreciate the characters of the story. And it's certainly empathy as a storyteller to know your audience and to judge who your audience is to make that story relevant, but also to know the characters of the story, empathy. To be a good ethnographer, to have appropriate protocol as you work with another culture, empathy is a, is a critical capacity that you need. Um, at the heart of indigenous knowledge and practice, what the Coeur d'Alene's call Henquilquinet, our ways of life in the world, this is the, it, at the heart of their worldview are, are a set of teachings, a set of teachings called MIP teachings. And at the core of those teachings, dealing with bravery, honesty, respect, for example, their core teachings, the heart of that is empathy, the ability to understand somebody else and to help them out with compassion. Gift-gifting is really essential, giving to those who are in need without thought of reciprocity, of getting something back, is a key Native tradition. And at the heart of the ability to do that is empathy. And I guess in my own healing journey, I was going, as I mentioned, my third, my second round of can, of cancer had to go through a stem cell transplant. Well, that I don't know if 
don't need to go into any detail with that, but there's a, about a 10-day period where my bones don't produce white and red blood cells or platelets. I'm kind of, you know, I'm not really viable <laughs> without infusions of stuff. It's a really strange position to be in. And it's, it's very close to the other side. And, and, and you get to that place, it's like up on that mountain with, with burnt face. You get down to your, what is essential? What is your core values, your core teachings of who you are? You get rid of all the, the superficial stuff down to your core. And I remember walking the halls of uh, University of Washington Hospital, hooked up to IVs, as I was feeling, as I was going past other patients. And I don't know what it was, just a crystalline, clear feeling I had. I've never had it before or since of just this outpouring from these rooms of these other patients. And all I explained was it, it, it was empathy. I had this tremendous empathy for all the people in that place. Just, it was a key uh, insight I had during this, this stem cell, this, this sort of liminal period within my own rite of passage. And so for me, the, the book is, is ultimately about the importance in our lives today. And it's not just for Indian people, to be sure, but for us all. If we're really to communicate, collaborate, or listen to those who may be different than ourselves, we need to have a capacity for empathy need to be able to listen to other people and appreciate their perspective. doesn't mean we accept it, but, we, but if we're going to work with anybody, collaborate, communicate, we've got to understand our neighbors. We, uh, we certainly need that, uh, especially in today's world. Uh, I wonder how do you—you've learned it in your life. Um, you learned it from people who have learned it. How do you transmit that? How do you teach that? How do you, how do you learn that? Probably no better example than uh, through your own, you know, example. It, it, I, mean, I, I certainly have had an opportunity to teach it to all my students, my grad students, uh, through my writings, uh, etc. Um, but to live an example, now that I'm retired, I probably won't be teaching as much. Won't have too many more grad students. But now I've I found a new route that, in a little way, that I've become a, a lay a chaplain at our hospital, for example, so I can. Uh, continue that example of, of empathy and sharing with those in needs and become a lay minister in my church. And so that, again, when a minister of the reverend can't get out to folks, I can be there for those who may need a, uh, someone to listen to, um, a helping hand. And so you know, just, you've got to live it in your life, and I, I, hopefully I, I, I'm doing a bit of that in, in what I'm doing now in retirement. What do you? Uh, what are the important things that you bring to that as a as a as a lay chaplain? Uh, I'm I'm interested. Uh, I I could guess maybe the you know, the importance of stories, the importance of yeah. heart talk, you know. But I'm but, I, let you say it exactly. And I you you really you really hit it, Tom. It's just this idea that all of us have powerful stories in our own family traditions and with our own lives. And I know that um, working with people in in um, retirement communities. Um, that isolation sometimes from family and friends and friends departing, um, the power of their own story sometimes does not get heard. And so to be able to go out and, and just be able to listen to the, the wonderful richness of each other's stories and, and to validate that as something important in people's lives, to give them a sense that truly if I can listen to, to a stranger's stories um, in a time of need, um, have them share it, and know that it's being heard. If I can really empathize with them, um, I, I don't think there's a better gift that I can give them, 
helping validate them um, at that time of, of, of challenge, but also enriching all of us as, as we carry forth those stories. We've got to continue to carry forth those stories, listening to each other and sharing our, our good stories with each other. It's a good place to end the conversation, and the title of the book is Carry Forth the Stories. Subtitle is An Ethnographer's Journey into Native Oral Tradition. The author, Rodney Fry, is Professor Emeritus of uh, Ethnography at the University of Idaho, author of several other books. This is the latest, and it is the winner of the Evans Handcart Prize, presented by Utah State University's Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Uh, Rodney Fry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation, and uh, good luck with, uh, with everything. Thank you. Good luck yourself. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Let's imagine you make raspberry jam to die for. It started as a hobby, though every time you take a jar to neighbors, they exclaim, you could sell this stuff. Maybe you could. Is it just a dream? How do you get started? What do you do next? It turns out there's an app for that. Well, in a sense. There's a state program sponsored by the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food for that. It's called Utah's Own, and it supports local food producers. As a marketing arm, what we provide for our food members is if you're a startup business, you can come in and and talk to somebody about how to the steps to take. Um, we'll give you uh, social media help. We'll take, um, we have photography, free, free photography for, for them to take pictures of their food to make their banners. That's Laurie Cerrone. She started out in her own kitchen making tortilla chips. In 2015, she took on another role as a program director for Utah's Own. You've noticed the bold Utah's Own label on product packaging at the grocery store. To receive the label, a company must meet three eligibility requirements. First, it must produce a food, beverage, or skin care product that incorporates agriculture ingredients from Utah. Second, it must be registered with the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food Regulatory Department. And third, it must have a valid business license. When we pick up that bottle of salad dressing with a Utah's own label, we know we're getting a product with local, regulated ingredients from an accountable company. Useful validations, to be sure. However, from a director's point of view, Cerrone describes something more. Utah Zone is more than just about putting the tags on the shelves. We love our food community. We do everything we can to market and help our food community grow. But that includes farmers, that includes the meat industry, the dairy industry, and food manufacturers, distilleries. I mean, we have a a large group of people, and really it's about trying to get them as much exposure as possible. Added exposure via marketing helps local businesses find their footing and survive in a competitive industry. Going further, Utah's own also drives exposure via industry networking to help local businesses connect with others and thrive. For instance, in 2017, Utah's own sponsored an event to connect members of the food community, essentially speed dating for farmers and food manufacturers. Once they got talking, the magic happened. A food producer who prefers a specific variety of garlic talked with a garlic farmer who is now planting the variety she needs. 
A baker known for his peach tarts met a peach farmer. The two were located only two blocks apart from each other. Utah's own is all about facilitating these connections for food businesses, notes Cerrone. Discussions on volume and cost progress, but do so within a deeper person-to-person relationship. The same holds true, she feels, for consumers choosing a product with a Utah's own label. While buying local benefits our economy, we also gain insight into where our food comes from, and we have the chance to put people behind the products. These are actual people that live in our community, and they are working really hard to make this. And wow, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that story and be a part of their business growing. When I stand up in front of a room full of local manufacturers and farmers, I really honestly can hardly talk. I I mean, I know their world because I've been in their world, but it is a room full of the most courageous people that you could ever meet because these are people who have a dream, and they just don't have the dream. They make this dream come true. Looking deeper, the Utah's own label may be on the packaging, but it's Utah's own people who make it great. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Palmer Home Furnishings celebrating President's Day with bedroom sets and mattresses from brands like Maloof, Spring Air, and Serta. Located at 1023 West, 800 North Suite 101 in Logan. Information at palmerhomefurnishings.com and on Facebook. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.